The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Should we think of the growing economic tensions between China and the United States as a financial cold war? And does the West's recent barrage of sanctions against Russia foreshadow a bigger showdown with the People's Republic? I talked to James Fock, a Hong Kong-based advisor to big companies and governments, to find out. Welcome back to The Exchange, regular conversation with people of interest to business and financial professionals around the world. I'm Peter Thalarsen, the acting editor of Reuters Breaking Views, the global financial commentary arm of Reuters News, coming to you from London. In this week's episode, we tackle one of the biggest questions in the world today. What is the future economic and financial relationship between China and the United States? Since China opened up its economy to the world in the 1990s, the two have become increasingly intertwined. American imports from China have boomed, while the People's Republic has accumulated vast foreign currency reserves which are mostly invested in US government bonds. But the relationship has become increasingly fractious. Just consider President Donald Trump's decision to impose tariffs on some Chinese goods, among other skirmishes. Now Russia's invasion of Ukraine has dramatically ratcheted up the pressure. The West has retaliated by unleashing an astonishing array of financial sanctions against Russian leaders, banks and oligarchs. Most notably, it has frozen a large chunk of the central bank's reserves. In the space of a month, Russia has effectively been unplugged from the Western economic and financial system. This raises several big questions for China. First, does it throw its full support behind Russia and risk being drawn into the showdown? Second, could the Western allies do the same to China? There are a few people as well-placed to debate these issues as James Fock. I first met James in Hong Kong not long after I moved there in 2016. At the time, he was the head of strategy at Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing, which operates the city's stock exchange. James grew up in the former British colony, studied in Beijing, and then worked in investment banking in Europe before returning to Hong Kong in 2008. This experience has given him deep insight into global financial markets and the complex interaction between America and China. He's gathered his knowledge into a book, Financial Cold War, which was published a few months ago. We cover a lot of ground. Give it a listen. James Falk, welcome to The Exchange. Very nice to be here, Peter. Thank you. So there are so many angles for us to talk about um, that it's really hard to know where to start. But I think I thought maybe let's kick off with this. I mean, your book, you describe the sort of unbalanced but independent relationship between China and the US as a financial cold war. So when would you say that the Cold War, that Cold War began? Well, it's, it's a good question because a lot of people, when you talk about China-US financial Cold War, they immediately jump to the Trump trade war, sanctions and so forth. And but by the time you get to that point, actually, I would say that you're already in a financial hot war. The, the financial Cold War actually dates back a lot further and is really the very slow and almost invisible build-up of tensions that that lead to the conflict. So I, I would say that the opening salvo of the financial Cold War was actually the Bretton Woods Agreement of 1944. This lodged the US dollar at the center of the global monetary system. And while it's been seen as a a huge source of power and advantage for the United States, what what this did was it embedded a fundamental imbalance at the heart 
of the global financial system. And over the decades since, this imbalance has grown and it's spread. And even for the United States today, I, I would say that actually this is a system that's now got more downsides than upsides, notwithstanding that the many benefits that it has had over the intervening decades. Yeah, so I, I, mean, I guess one thing I'm sort of curious about is, is, is how helpful the Cold War analogy is. I mean, so the actual Cold War was between two countries that were economically almost entirely separate, right? But as you explain in your book in great, in great detail, um, China and the US have become sort of economically and financially interdependent. And I guess in the actual Cold War, you had this sort of, it was the threat of mutual nuclear destruction that sort of prevented things from really, uh, uh, from really getting bad. Is it, is it sort of helpful to think about the relationship between China and the US in financial terms in the same way? I mean, mutually assured destruction sounds very dramatic, but the reality is that just given the level to which the two countries financial and trade systems are intertwined and interconnected, that they, they operate with this kind of symbiosis whereby, frankly, it's not an option to decouple or, or disengage because that, that would only make the two countries the poorer and, frankly, a lot of other countries the, the poorer. And I think that that would ultimately exacerbate a lot of the tensions and, and conflicts that exist. So I, I do think that, you know, mutually assured destruction is, is probably too dramatic a term, but mutually assured serious harm would, I, I think, be the, the, the operative phrase in that relationship. Yeah, well, I guess we're sort of, uh, uh, and we will come back to Russia in a bit, but, but obviously we're seeing a situation where one, one, at least one country is suffering. There is a certain amount of mutual economic harm going on between between the rest and Russia, and particularly particularly with Russia. But I'd like to come come back to that. But just sticking with the with the sort of China U.S. relationship for the time being, one of the sort of paradoxes about this is even as you say that sort of what the, this, despite what you call sort of the hot phase of the war, the, the trade war, Trump's tariffs, and so forth, the financial linkages actually between the two are, are getting deeper. Right? I mean. American banks are still expanding in mainland China, you know, and buying up joint ventures and so forth. And international investors have been increasing their exposure to, to Chinese securities. Do you see? Do you think there's something extra about that continuing, or can you see that going into reverse? Well, I mean, it's it's a really it, there's this kind of parallel track between what what's actually happening in markets and the the interests of private commercial enterprises and the rhetoric that's going on at the governmental and, and policy level, because the, the reality is that the, the interlinkages are growing ever deeper. And for the last 10 years of my life, I, I was working very hard to, to make those interlinkages deeper. And I think that they, they have been a huge benefit to, to both countries. You know, it, it's not impossible that, that they reverse. Uh, I think, you know, the, the question now is going to be, you know, a lot of individual decisions taken by policy 
makers and you know, what what the effects of those are. But you know, even even if they choose to even if they choose to continue on this into you know, growing into linkage, uh, I think we, we do need to find some way of rebalancing that relationship because it, it generally the, the interlinkages and, and the deepening of the relationship has had a, a lot of benefits, but that there have been also a lot of losers out of this. And particularly when you look at, you know, I, I think, you know, you, a lot of people focus on, on trade. The reality is that, you know, if you look at the global capital flows, trade accounts for only 10% of the capital crossing borders, it's really financial flows that are, are the lion's share of what what is important. And but when you look at the, the role of the US dollar, not just in that relationship with China, but in its usage around the world today, the, the, the great thing about the dollar is that it's created a, a it's created a common language and a common unit that people can trade and invest around the world through. What what that's meant for a lot of smaller, particularly emerging countries, is that they, they've ended up having to borrow in dollars. So their governments, their companies borrow in dollars. And we, we've seen wave after wave of emerging markets crises, which, which are generally precipitated by a fall in those countries' currencies versus the US dollar, that then makes it very difficult to repay those debts and it precipitates bankruptcies, it precipitates unemployment and a huge amount of economic misery. But I think the, the thing that's not looked at so carefully is the impact on the United States itself. The dollar is often talked of as a, a, a source of exorbitant privilege in favor of the United States at the expense of everyone else. And whether that's true or not actually really depends on where in U.S. society you sit. So if you happen to be the fortunate wealthy shareholder of a large U.S. corporation that's been able to take advantage of this overvalued dollar because international demand for dollars is driving this overvaluation, and you've been able to, the company's been able to outsource its production to lower cost centers with undervalued currencies, then you, you've, you've seen massive benefit because the companies have cut their costs, have increased their profit margins, and you, you've seen your share price go up leaps and bounds. But over the last 40 years, if you've been a US manufacturing worker, the, the story for you has been one of job losses, displacement, and at best, wage stagnation. And what, what, what this has driven is the, the widening of that wealth and income gap in the United States. And it's not uniquely the United States that is, is suffering from this problem, but what, what's happening is that as that divide has widened, it's driving ever greater social conflict, which is spilling over into the, the financial hot war and, and frankly, just hot wars that you're starting to see around the world now. Yes, and I guess the, 
the, the corollary of that to that would be looking at China. We talked about sort of, you know, winners and losers. You could make the same argument that actually people in China, the, 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 the general public in China has not benefited as much as they could have from this opening up because of the way in which which the, the Chinese regime has run the economy. Well, that, that's that's a really good that, that's a really good point, Peter, because China actually doesn't yet have such an acute problem of wealth and income inequality. Although wealth and income inequality is just as bad as in the US, it's not as acute a political issue because China's opened up in in the late 1970s, it's reformed its economy and generally because of the speed of growth and the speed of improvement in people's lifestyles, most people have generally seen an improvement in their standard of living over the course of their, their lives. But the way that Chinese policymakers have achieved that, and it, it really is a remarkable achievement, that the way that they've achieved that is by, they, they've tended to issue borrowing from international markets, at least at, at the public level. And so the, the capital that came to fund China's growth and all that infrastructure and other development came from holding down consumption by, by various measures. And th through the government's control of the state banking system, Chinese workers' savings were able to be directed to the government's priority infrastructure and other development projects. And that in the early stages of China's opening up and reforms was incredibly successful. But what you're seeing today is that the Chinese economy has now reached a level where that top-down investment-driven economic model now has really hit the end of its useful life. And the continued top-down investment-led economic growth is leading to ever greater capital misallocation, which is likely to slow down China's economic growth trajectory going forward. And so China needs to reform. And China also faces a, a really fundamental problem, which is that a, a big driver of China's economic miracle was the fact that it had this massive baby boom population, like a lot of other countries. But because in the late 1970s, they instituted a one-child policy, that the ratio of working age population relative to dependence exploded exponentially. And what, what you're seeing now is that China is aging more rapidly than any other major country in the world. And so you can you can think about it. I I happen to be a I, I was an exchange student in Japan in, in 1996 and it, it already passed the peak of the Japanese economic bubble. But I remember my, my parents gave me quite a generous allowance. But Japan at the time was so expensive that I worked out that if I wanted to have some beer money for the weekend, I could afford to eat one meal a day. 
So I used to go to this restaurant near to my school. It happened to be a Ukrainian restaurant. And I, I didn't go there because the food was good. I went there because the portions were big. It was stodgy. And I could fill up, fill up my belly and, you know, I'd get myself through the day and save up some, some money to go out of the weekends with. If you go to Japan today, if you go to Tokyo, it is one of the most affordable top tier cities in the world. As Japan's population has started declining, in parts of Japan, I don't know whether you remember this, but in, in the late 1980s, there, there, was this, there, there was this statistic that went out that the Imperial Palace ground, that square in the middle of Tokyo, was worth more than all of the land in the whole of California. You go to Japan now, parts of rural Japan, you can't even give away the houses. And so when you think about this in the context, when you think about this in the context of China, something like 78% of urban household wealth is invested in residential real estate. If your working age population is falling, it already is falling, and your, your absolute size of population is falling over the next few decades, Who's going to live in all these houses? Is that going to be worth what people think it's, it is worth? And is it going to provide a source of income that's going to see Chinese pensioners through their, their hopefully long and, and healthy retirements? It's clearly not. And the, the problem that China has now is that because it, it's dependent on this kind of top-down investment-led model for so long that they've, they've failed to fully develop their financial markets. And so investors in China actually have very few things that they can put their money into. That there's that They have large stock markets and they, they have a large bond market, but it's nowhere near large enough to absorb that huge pool of savings. The, the second largest pool of China's savings sits in bank deposits. $35 trillion of Chinese citizens' savings sit in, in deposits where they're yielding a, a tiny yield that's clearly not going to generate the sort of returns that are going to help these, these people survive through their retirement. So the, the, problem that, the, the problem that China's got is that it needs to it needs to find a way of driving that savings into capital markets products that will actually be able to generate the sort of returns that that they're going to need, or at least to to slightly offset the pressure that is already going to be there on the social welfare system. And the the, the problem that China's got as this geopolitical conflict with the United States has, has built up is that you know, the, these, these things are never quite perfect. China needs to get a lot of savings into capital markets, but its own capital markets being relatively undeveloped means that if they try and force those savings into the Chinese stock market or the Chinese bond market in a very short space of time, it's going to 
ignite these or it's going to blow up these huge asset price bubbles that are going to destabilize the economy and the social system. So China needs to find a way of allowing some of that money to go out into international capital markets. But the challenge that China faces today is that in doing that is that for, for Chinese investors investing outside of mainland China beyond Hong Kong, they are entirely dependent on a Western controlled system of custody, depositories, payment networks. And when you look at what has happened to Russia, the, the, the means of affecting those financial sanctions on Russia and, and how powerful and how devastating they've been, China, Chinese policymakers have just sat up and said, look, you know, we, we really need to do this, but we can't possibly put ourselves at this financial security risk. So, so you mentioned Russia, and I think, I mean, I think it's, this is I mean, really interesting. I mean, obviously, also horrifying in terms of the actual conflict, but, but geopolitically and, and, ge and financially, uh, the sort of consequences are fascinating. I mean, do you think that the, the Chinese leadership in Beijing have been caught by surprise by what the, by what the West did to Russia? I, I, I'm not party. I'm not party to to you know what what they're party to. But you know, my my outside observation is that they they are very concerned, and they're, they're very con they're very concerned because China actually has a fairly established principle which which it's which is very clearly articulated about non-interference in the affairs of other countries. And so Ru Russia's invasion of Ukraine is, is clearly a, a massive violation of that. At the same time, they, they also face many of the same challenges that Russia faces in that you know, China is, is somewhat surrounded by you know, potentially hostile military forces, particularly around the South China Sea and through you know, key arteries through which it, it imports energy and, and food commodities. And so it, it, understands, it understands Russia's sensitivity about you know, its, its border security in Europe and, and the sensitivity about you know, countries directly on its border becoming a part of a, a Western military alliance that is normally, or is normally set up to oppose and, and contain Russia. So in that sense, that they're, they're sympathetic. But the, the big problem, the, the big problem for, for China is that China shares a 2,600 mile border with Russia. Russia is hugely important to the security and stability of a number of Central Asian countries on China's western border. And you know, we, we talked about that, that chokehold that the US Navy has over the Straits of Malacca. China, unlike the US, is massively dependent on imports of core commodities. You think of China as being a, a huge exporter, but the reality is that China exports manufactured 
products to the rest of the world, but the core inputs into those manufactured products, in fact, the core, the, the core inputs on which China depends for its energy and for its food come from elsewhere because China is not energy self-sufficient and it's not self-sufficient in the amount of food that, that it, it grows. And so because the, the US has a chokehold over the Straits of Malacca, which is the key shipping lane through which the, those imports come into China, China has been forced to diversify it, its the places from where it buys those core inputs and core commodities. And one of the key sources of them now is Russia across the Siberian border. And so China has to be China has to be really very careful here because while you know as much as they, they might be morally outraged by that Russia's military action in Ukraine, and as much as they, they may be very fearful about the fallout and consequences for the global economy, including China, they, they can't afford to see Russia either become destabilized or to take action that may turn Russia hostile against it. And so it, it is a really, it is a really it is a really fine tightrope that Chinese policymakers are being forced to, to walk. And, you know, although that their, their threats be, being touted about, you know, if, if China supports Russia, maybe, you know, the, the United States and Europe will start putting sanctions on, on Russia, on China as well as Russia. The, the reality is that, you know, I think everyone needs to step back and, and recognize that you know, China's not, China's been put into a very difficult position. It's trying to remain as neutral as possible because it doesn't want to aggravate its neighbor on, on the one hand. And on the other hand, it doesn't want to become you know, a victim of Western financial and other sanctions itself. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a very... A good perspective and I think a much more nuanced view on the Chinese position than often you hear you hear elsewhere. But I guess the, this, this whole episode does raise a, another question, which is, could the West, particularly the US, but with, with sort of Western allies, initiate similar kind of a similar financial sort of attack on China in response to, say, a Chinese invasion of Taiwan or something like that? And what could China do to, to insulate itself from what's happened to Russia. Well, I, I think you have to look at you have to look at this at, at multiple levels because I mean the the, the financial the, the financial sanctions affect kind of money markets, financial markets, and so forth. And while while those are very important, I think you, you have to peel back a little bit more to the fundamentals. So, as I articulated earlier on. China is, is China is hugely dependent on trade, but China's trade generally is with the outside world and, and its exports are really manufactured goods. China is not self-sufficient for 
it, the original inputs, the, the core commodity inputs into those. And key among those are oil, uh, energy, and food. The, the United States, the, the United States is a hugely privileged country, not not because of the dollar per se, but actually the the, the U.S. You know, is separated from you know, the rest of the world by two very wide oceans. But critically, it is relatively sparsely populated. It's got abundant food resource, it produces abundant food resources, more than enough to feed itself. And since the advent of the, the shale oil revolution, the US is now energy independent. And so in that sense, in that sense, China, you know, leave aside, leave aside the issue of, of financial sanctions, whether that, you know, 1.1 trillion of, of US treasuries that it holds as foreign currency reserves might get frozen. But the reality is that the, the problem for China is that it's not, it's not self-sufficient for core things that it needs for its population to survive and and go about their everyday lives and so yes when you talk about when you talk about you know, would financial sanctions on china of the type that have been put on russia would they be very dangerous for china yes they they would be because actually china is not you know china actually doesn't have the option of decoupling or, or you know, closing its borders down to the rest of the world. I mean, the, the, the last time it, it tried to do that, you know, you, you had you, you had a famine you know, during the Great Leap Forward in which I think, you know, estimates of up to 40 million people died of starvation. So Chinese policymakers are, are acutely conscious of of those vulnerabilities. And so uh, I think China will do everything within its power reasonably to, to avoid aggravating Western uh, nations and, and having those sorts of sanctions put on itself. So you, in the book, you, you, you sort of sketch out three possible ways to sort of de-escalate tensions. You, know, you talk about countries agreeing to make greater use of, of special drawing rights to the International Monetary Fund rather than dollars. You talk about rebalancing the economy so the dollar becomes less important, or, or you talk about sort of keeping the dollar as a reserve currency, but but managing it somehow on a, on a more international basis. I mean, you accept that all these three, these three uh, uh, solutions are, are sort of have, have, have their issues, particularly given what's happened in the last month. Are you, are you more or less optimistic about some sort of de-escalation being possible? I, I'm extremely concerned and that that was one of the major motivators for me in writing the book. What, what you talked about there are, are reforms to the global dollar-centric monetary system, but actually the, the, the problem that, that we've got right now is that you know, when you look at when you look at the financial system, when you look at money, etc. I mean, ultimately, what is the purpose of all of that? I mean, it, effectively, it's at its core, it's a mechanism for 
distributing society's resources. And you know, when, when there's a roughly fair balance uh, in that distribution, then society generally finds itself in, in some sort of harmony. O over the course of history, you've seen you know, huge concentrations of, of wealth and resources build up that have excluded a very large segment of the population. And, and that ultimately, we, we've seen throughout history, has led to very bad outcomes. And you know, the, the rise in populist nationalism today uh, around many parts of the world, I, I think, can, can tra be traced to this issue of widening wealth and income inequality. And so the, the dollar, is, the, the dollar is, is one problem in that. You know, other problems that, that exist today are, are the fact that in this globalized world that, that we exist in, all countries are trying to attract uh, investment to themselves. And what one of the major levers through which they've done that is through fiscal competition, reducing levels of tax to make it more attractive for people to come to their country and invest. The, the, the problem that you've got here is that capital is inherently more mobile than labor. You can move money at the touch of a button, whereas it's much more difficult if you want to move yourself. You have to sell your house. You have to you know, move yourself. You have to move your kids. You have to find a new school in another country and so forth. And so policymakers have found it much easier to tax labor income than, than capital income. And th this has resulted in grossly unfair tax systems in which ordinary middle class workers find themselves paying far higher rates of taxation than, than the very wealthy. You've also had failures in industrial policy. Some of it, I think, it is in some of the misguided free market ideology that, that has been very dominant since the 1980s. And so failures to enforce antitrust regulations have, have led to you know, excessive corporate monopoly power which has been to the detriment of, of the little guy. And then you're topping that all off, you know, at, at every level, you, you've had a lot of perverse incentive structures. You know, the, 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 the corporate executive remuneration, you know, that, that you've seen you know, when, when it's very much driven by shares that, you know, incentivizes companies or, or top managers to do share buybacks which are a much easier way, way to drive share price appreciation than actually invest in growth and growing the business, growing employment and, and long-term productivity for the economy, which has held back the, you know, a lot of countries' economic potential. So I think you know, having identified these problems, and, and they're, they're complex problems, but they are, they are the key ones that face our financial world today. And what ultimately policymakers need to do is they need to find a way to make the international financial system work better for a much larger swathe of the population so that, that the fruits of economic growth are, are more fairly distributed. Only through that will you see a de-escalation in these problems. And you know, there, there are lots of 
that there are lots of very small steps that need to be taken. And because we, we now live in this globally intertwined and interconnected world, inevitably that is going to require a level of international cooperation. And so I, I, I'm a part of the reason that, that I wrote this book was that I, I wanted to lay out the, the facts uh, as I saw them so that people would better understand what the issues are. And you know, hopefully that leads to people starting to talk about resolutions. But as we stand at the moment, I'm, I'm very concerned because the, the level of distrust and animosity that, that exists between many of the leading countries around the world makes that cooperation and, and coordinated, which is absolutely fundamental, very difficult. No, I think you're right. Unfortunately, I think you're right. Uh, James, we could talk about this for, well, probably for days, I imagine, if we had the time. But uh, but I think I think for now, we'd, we'd pretty best to leave it there. But I hope that I hope that we can pick this up again at some point. Maybe actually might one, one of these days see you in Hong Kong, or you might be able to leave Hong Kong more easily than you can at the moment. I can't, can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But in the meantime, James, uh, thank you so much for your time. It's been really interesting. Thank you very much, Peter. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Katrina Hamlin and Thomas Shum in Hong Kong. You can find more episodes of The Exchange and our sister podcast, Views Room, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you like to listen. Also, remember to check out our views at breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews.